Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond and joining me today is our deal reporter Scott DeVoe and Bloomberg Gadfly's Tara LaChapelle. Today we're going to be discussing the deal for Encore by Sempra, which was announced yesterday on Monday. And we're also going to look at the billionaire investor Warren Buffett and what this deal means for him and his future investment opportunities. So, Scott, you broke some important news on this over the weekend, which was that Sempra had essentially agreed a deal for Encore. Why don't you start by telling us a bit about what Encore actually is and what they do? So if you recall, this is uh, this was actually part of the biggest leverage buyout in, in history. It's, it was TXU. It was the utility division, the Texas utility division. And so over time, obviously, you know, that leverage came and bit them in the butt and they ended up uh, going bankrupt. Um, and then uh, their parent company, Energy Future Holding, has gone through this process. It's been a three-year bankruptcy process. And, uh, you know, there's been several suitors that have come along, uh, the Hunt Brothers, uh, Nextera, and then obviously uh, Berkshire Hathaway's uh, energy division, and then uh, now Sempra. And it looks like at the moment Sempra is going to emerge victorious, but I suppose it begs the inevitable question, why have so many of the previous offers for this company and so many of the previous suitors failed in their efforts to actually to acquire it? Well, the the big hurdle is obviously the Texas Utility uh, Commission, so the the Texas PUC, and so they want to ensure that this this thing doesn't end up uh, in bankruptcy again. And so they've set out a pretty strenuous um, list of conditions that they want to adhere to. And the reason why Berkshire was actually successful, and why that we thought that you know Berkshire was going to get this, was because they did a lot of upfront work with the Texas uh, PUC um, and found about I think they said forty-seven at the end um, commitments that they that they were going to make regulatory commitments that they were going to make to help get this deal across the line. So that was supposed to happen on Monday, but obviously things changed. Now, Elliot. The sort of, I suppose, activist hedge fund, although they do a lot of other different kind of hedge funding work, and and, in this we're perhaps less activist and more debt investor, they have a fairly significant role in this and actually at some point were bidding for the whole of uh, of Encore themselves. What have they done behind the scenes to sort of engender the deal that we've now seen come to the table? So if you recall, basically, they own uh, they own the majority of the unsecured debt. And uh, they, along with uh, another creditor, were in opposition to the uh, Berkshire bid because it was only going to give them about 18 cents on the dollar on their investment. So they started banging the drums pretty loud about the Berkshire bid and said that they were opposed to it and that they thought that the fair value of Encore was about $9.3 billion and that, uh, you know, if Berkshire didn't up its bid, it would make a bid for them, uh, make a bid itself. So it started going around talking to all kinds of Canadian pension funds, infrastructure funds, sovereign wealth funds, um, even some local family funds in Texas to try to, to put that $9.3 billion together. But of course, over that period of time, they also had some inbounds from um, strategic buyers. So uh, Sempro was actually one of the ones that uh, approached them about a month ago about potentially partnering. And they had some preliminary talks about that. But ultimately, Sempra decided that um, it could basically do this by itself. Elliot had basically set a benchmark saying that it was going to be, be at least worth 9.3. So if they could figure out a way to make this work for a higher bid, Elliot would have a hard time saying no to it. So they came with a $9.4 or $5 billion bid. 
Elliott's going to make uh, 45 to 50 cents on the dollar on their investment. And so they threw their support behind it. Was there a sense that, you know, this was in any way personal between obviously Paul Singer and Warren Buffett, who have been fairly vocal adversaries over the, well, over the years, because they're both long, long, long-term players in this market? Or was this pure business for Elliott? I think it's just business. But I, I think, you know, I've covered a few of these Warren Buffett deals. And, um, you know, a lot of the guys that you end up talking to on the background get this kind of thing where they're like, well, you know, this is a Buffett deal. And a Buffett deal is basically when you you get something for cheaper than it should go because you have this Buffett halo. So we saw this up in Canada recently with Home Capital, um, which was this embattled home lender. And um, Buffett came in with some pretty strenuous terms. They ended up getting... You know, twenty percent of the company uh, at a substantial discount to where the where the shares were trading, and uh, you know, there's a there's a court hearing coming up on the second tranche, which, which would give it another twenty nine percent of the company at ten dollars a share, which is a substantial discount to where it's trading, and so you get these things all the time where these people are like, you know, this deal doesn't make sense. You know, there's got to be somebody that'll pay more for this, but you know, because it's Buffett, the buyers and the sellers tend to, you know get caught up in this uh, Buffett halo. Which brings me very, very nicely into talking to Tara, who has written this excellent piece um, on Bloomberg Gadfly, which you can find on our website, called Buffett Can't Afford to Keep Coming Up Empty-Handed. And it really poses a question of why is it that Buffett, who, as you point out, Scott, has been incredibly successful at sort of doing deals that don't go to auction and sewing up acquisitions before anyone else has a chance to come in. Why is it the last few things that we've seen him attempt have either been leaked and blown up because of that, or someone else has come over the top, as appears to be the case with this Encore deal? So Tara, talk to us about this piece. What's changed for Buffett in, in these deals that you sort of cite recently? Yeah, it seems like the last few years, it, it, the M&A environment has sort of been working against him a little bit in, in different ways. Uh, like Scott was saying, it used to be that, you know, the Buffett premium was that you're selling to Buffett. That's your premium. You know, like he could get a deal very cheaply, work behind the scenes, keep it between just those two parties. No one would really know about the talks until it it got announced and no competing bidders would really dare emerge publicly. Um, so it's really interesting to see now the last couple deals have blown up this year. First, it was Kraft Heinz going after Unilever for $143 billion. And that leaked out. Of course, Buffett was going to be one of the backers of that deal, putting up, I think, about $15 billion. And he, you know, that he's not used to having his deals leak out like that and blow up so publicly and have the target have sort of this um, sort of a contentious situation because his deals are all very friendly. Um, so I think he was probably very disappointed with that. And investors are waiting for Berkshire to do a large deal. So when Encore got announced, it wasn't particularly large for Berkshire, but it's a good acquisition for the energy division at around $9 billion. So to now have that a competing bidder emerge, which is unusual to happen in public, and to have Paul Singer fighting it so vocally. Um, I think that kind of caught the Berkshire people off guard. You know, what's happening? This is not how they do deals. And it kind of begs the question, well, what happens now? Is there another deal out there that Berkshire could do because they've got all this cash? Or are they going to keep running into problems? You've got expensive targets. Um, you've got more bidders out there for all these different assets and different industries. So he's no longer sort of this um, getting this preferential treatment, if you will. Yeah. And so it's this sort of, the, I guess, the, the dual problems of leaks and interlopers seem mm -hmm. to be stymieing some of his efforts. So you point out in the piece, look, Buffett is 87. Um, he's unusual among octogenarians in, in terms of still being out there pursuing $50 billion plus yeah. deals. 
you raise the alternative that he could end up having to return money to shareholders through the form of a dividend, something he's obviously very reluctant to do. He is a deal maker by nature and has kind of built his reputation over decades in, in doing deals. How likely do you think it is that we see him actually going down this other path and saying, well, look, I have all this cash. Yeah. Maybe I should return it shareholders in another form. It's interesting. Earlier this year, we wrote a column saying that it's very likely that we could see Buffett's successor return money via a dividend or do more buybacks. Because, you know, you figure the next guy who steps into his shoes, no matter how great they are, they're going to have a hard time doing deals just for the simple fact that the environment has gotten tougher for them. It's harder to move the needle at Berkshire. And also, they're not Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett there's a reason he's able to do all these amazing deals. And so that was sort of our thinking. And then as you see these two deals fall apart like this, you start to wonder, well, maybe it's not Buffett's successor that does this. Maybe Warren Buffett needs to start thinking about returning money to shareholders. And he, I think, surprised his investors when he said almost as much at the shareholder meeting in May. You know, he basically said that in three years, if, if he has $150 billion or so on the balance sheet in cash, he can't justify that. He cannot talk to his shareholders and say, there's a smart reason for us maintaining this cash. I mean, he knows that his mandate is to find good investments. And so I think that the longer it sits there, and if they continue to have a harder time this year finding a mega deal of the 10 to maybe $50 billion and higher range, then it becomes more likely that he needs to backpedal on something he's you know long said he would never do, which is pay a dividend and buy back shares at, this, at these levels. And I guess the M&A cycle could also turn against him in terms of we are in, at the moment, a very, very um, strong period for deal making, and that could could turn. Anyway, it raises the interesting question as to whether or not at 90 he has $150 billion to spend, and uh, he could be, the I guess, the oldest guy to do a $100 billion-plus acquisition if that were ever to come to pass. So that's it for this week's episode. You can expect more Bloomberg reports and M&A professionals who are doing deals in real time. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any app where you can listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. You can find me on Twitter at EdHammondNY, and I'm going to let Tara and Scott take you through their handles. So Tara, you can find you at... At Tara Lush. And Scott... At Scott DeVoe. Sarah Patterson is our producer, and Alec McCabe is our head of podcasts. 